Hi, this is Dr. Christopher Perrin, and welcome to this episode of The Christopher Perrin Show. You can listen to this podcast on a number of different podcast platforms, and you can also view the video of this recording on my Substack at ChristopherPerrin at Substack.com or on the uh, YouTube channel of Classical Academic Press. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Today, I'd like to talk about powerful education, powerful education in the great tradition. I've subtitled this, Tradition is Formative, A Great Tradition is Transformative. This presentation, this episode, is a kind of a general one about just how formative, powerful, a good and great education can be. And I'm thinking, of course, of great tradition education. Some would call it classical education. Some would call it liberal arts education. In my mind, these describe the same thing. So let me begin by saying this. Forma, the Latin word forma in Latin means shape, beauty, or form. Forma lives in at least a dozen English derivatives. The word form, which can be a noun and a verb, so I guess we can count it twice, Formal, informal, inform, conform, transform, reform, and reformation and reformer, and a host of adjectival forms like informative, transformative, conformative, and simply formative. And there are adverbs too, like formally and informally. It's a great word, forma. It sounds good too, forma. Then there's the Greek word, well, idea, but let's just say idea. It comes into, it's a loan word. It comes directly from the Greek into English. The word idea, it's from the verb ideing, which means to see in Greek. When we come to understand an idea, we often say, I see it. Plato uses this word to describe the heavenly pre-existing realities from which all that is true, good, and beautiful is derived and reflected here on earth, even if imperfectly. These forms are independent of us and our physical eyes, but we see them with our mind's eye, intellectually. We see formally, if not visually. These ideas are not material, and thus they are eternal and unchangeable. You've probably heard of Plato's philosophy of the forms or the ideas, and usually those words are capitalized. From the Greek word idea, we get idea, ideology, ideate, ideation. Do you generate lots of ideas? Well, then you're an ideator. Idiot, by the way, comes from a different Greek word, and it refers to someone who keeps to himself and utters incomprehensible propositions that we might call idioms. Plato certainly was a great ideator. He thought a lot about forms and so much so that we sometimes capitalize the word form when we speak of his philosophy. Plato's philosophy of forms was received as a venerable tradition of thought by the ancient and early Christians, such as Origen, Clement, Clement of Alexandria, that is, Basil and Augustine. When Augustine praised the Platonists, he was writing around 400 AD, over 700, eight, 700 years after Plato. Plato's doctrine of the pre-existing forms, his doctrine of virtue, harmony, and education, they were all received into Augustine's thought and into theological thought generally, but with modification. 
Plato said many things that were true and in harmony with biblical teaching, but several things he also said were decidedly not in harmony with biblical teaching, like his doctrine of the pre-existing soul, the transmigration of the soul, and knowledge as recollection of what we once knew before we were born. In one place, Augustine writes, Many wonderful things have I read in the Platonists, but never once have I read, Come unto me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. This is to say that Plato represents an early part of a great tradition, but his doctrine of the forms needed to be transformed so that he might conform to the form of biblical truth and teaching. Chesterton reminds us that reform must always have reference to form. If Plato the ideator is to be reformed, well, what is our standard for form? As Christians, we might say it's the teaching of the Bible, the revealed truth that comes to us in the incarnation of Christ. Aristotle disputed Plato's claim that there was a form of the good, and Christians quote Christ who say, who is good but God alone? The Christian form for the true good and beautiful is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity, one in essence and undivided. Some like Augustine think that had Plato been born after the Incarnation, he too would have confessed faith in the Trinity. He would have been a Christian. Paul writes in Romans 12, 1-2, that we are not to be conformed to the world or the age, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we might prove and demonstrate the will of God that which is good, well-pleasing, and perfect. Paul, of course, is writing in Greek, but he's using words that we would recognize even if we don't know Greek. His word for conformed, or you know, in be not conformed, is suschimazo. And you can clearly hear the word scheme in it. We know the word scheme. We know the word schemata. It is a plan. It's a layout, a design. In Greek, it also has the connotation of what appears to us, but which is not real. The world has its schemes that we should avoid, patterns of life that appear to be true, but which are false. Here the word can be rendered, don't be remodeled. He also says that we are to be transformed in this passage, and he uses the word morphe for morpho, which is another Greek word for shape, morphe. Well, when we think of morph, we think of it as meaning to change, but it has reference to changing into a particular morphe or shape. Note that when we are transformed, we demonstrate the good in this passage. We prove what is good and acceptable. The word that Paul uses here is agathos, the same word that Plato uses for his form of the good. So we might ask, is this an example of a Christian fulfillment of pagan longing that we would be conformed into something that is good, the morphe of the good? As we can see by simply starting with Plato and his doctrine of the forms or ideas and then noting his treatment by Augustine, who modifies him and filters him, and comparing Plato with St. Paul, we're already entering into a tradition 
an important tradition of thought, a tradition that has often been called the Great Tradition. In fact, it is said of Plato and Aristotle that never had a teacher such a student or a student such a teacher because Plato taught Aristotle. But we might say, well, that's true, but what about Socrates who taught Plato? What a trio they were. Socrates teaches Plato, Plato teaches Aristotle. But then there were some other interesting pairs like Ambrose and Augustine, and also Origen and Gregory the Wonderworker. Origen taught Gregory. Gregory, who said of Origen, I would have fellowship with that man and went to study with him. But there was also Macrina, who taught her younger brothers, Basil and Gregory, both of whom became bishops. And then there was the Venerable Bede, who taught Egbert and Egbert Alcuin and Alcuin Charlemagne. If we allow for gaps of time, we also have such relations as in the epic tradition as Homer teaching Virgil and Virgil teaching Dante and Dante Milton and Milton Lewis and Lewis Berry and Berry Marilyn Robinson and let's not forget Christ and his 12 apostles. Then there was the apostle John and his disciple Polycarp. But we have to stop. Tradition comes from tradere, which means to hand down. Person to person, teacher to student, wonderful wisdom has been passed down. But it's not really a tradition until we receive it. Can you see why we might call this tradition the great tradition? We might even call the renewal of classical education the renewal of great tradition education. Chesterton called tradition the democracy of the dead, because it's wise and appropriate not to silence our ancestors. People like Augustine ought to have a voice and a vote and not be excluded from conversation for the inconvenient fact that they have departed this earthly life. We shall have the dead at our councils, says Chesterton. It's worth noting and knowing the ways in which this tradition is great, venerable, and blessed. The great tradition is transformative, and it does empower us simply by giving us remarkable gifts, gifts that can be compared to the magic healing potion given to Lucy by Aslan or the unbeatable Excalibur sword given to King Arthur by the Lady of the Lake or the impenetrable Mithril, given to Frodo by Bilbo. The tradition bequeaths to us a hoard of wealth, impossible to fully delineate, but I'll suggest five precious gifts that are freely offered to anyone who would open his or her hands to the great tradition. The Greek word for power is dunamis, from which we get dynamite, and one Latin equivalent is potentia, related to our word potent and potential these gifts, in my opinion, are dynamic and they are potent. First, the great tradition gives to us a gift of fellowship. We all need a place to belong. We all need to know that we are from somewhere, that we have a place from which we have come, a home, a home base. As a tradition, the great tradition seats us at a table, a long table, where we find ourselves seated next to and in conversation with 
the likes of Plato, Augustine, and St. Paul, and many others who are our fellows and friends. They love the same things we love and teach us to love these things, and thus we find ourselves loving them. They become amici, which in Latin and Italian are derived from the word amor, love. They are our loved ones. I remember once, maybe seven or eight years ago, interviewing a high school student from the Regent School of Austin and asking her why she enjoyed her study of Latin. And the first thing she cited was the sense of connection and community, fellowship, that she experienced reading authors like Augustine in his own tongue. Even reading Augustine in English will bring you into a friendship with him. Any Christian who has thoughtfully read the Confessions or On Christian Doctrine or The City of God by Augustine has found a friend and a very wise one. Many of you have very close friends who have lived hundreds of years ago, like Augustine or St. Paul or Jesus. Our lives are like grass and flowers of the field, Jesus says, or a vapor, like James says. We could line up across the front of a church all of the great bishops of Jerusalem or all of the bishops of Rome, that is, the popes, or sit them all down in a relatively small church. Our fraternity is smaller than we might think when we qualify the tradition by saying that it consists of the great writers of the great books. Those who are truly great are fewer in number than we first imagined, but more importantly, they are closer than we imagined, both in terms of time and thought. Their thought, like one thought given to us by Chesterton, the tradition, that tradition is the democracy of the dead, can be as near as your own beating heart, in the same way that a million angels can dance on the head of a pin, because angels, being bodiless, have no extension in space. Thoughts, too, have no extension in space. And so Chesterton's thought can dwell in you. It can be your thought. Tradition is the democracy of the dead. Chesterton can be very a very close friend indeed. He is to me. People of the great tradition, is that you? People of the great tradition have often talked this way. Petrarch, for example, was a great seeker after ancient manuscripts in the 1300s. He read and loved, among others, Cicero. Then he found a lost letter of Cicero. What was his response? Well, naturally, he began to write letters back to Cicero. Never mind that Cicero had lived over a thousand years before him. He also loved the confessions of Augustine so much that he decided to make Augustine his confessor. And he wrote to Augustine of his struggles. To what address he sent his letters to Cicero and Augustine, well, I don't know. Secondly, as a gift, the tradition gives to us virtue. If the tradition gives us friends, it follows that it also gives us virtue. For friends lead us to virtue, perhaps more than anything else. The tradition itself tells us, even as it tells us about the formative powers of the tradition itself, that friendship is so important for virtue formation. Cicero says it's the nature of friendship not to lead us to vice, 
but to aid virtue. Aristotle says that friendship is like a single soul occupying two bodies. He says as well that there are three kinds of friends, and one is preferred above all. There are the useful friends, first, like those friends that we have who own a pickup truck. It's always good to include in your circle of friends one who owns a pickup truck. Friends can be useful in more profound ways, too. You might have a friend who knows Latin or Italian when you want to learn those languages, or a friend who is great at financial management and budgeting when you are in need of those skills. Aristotle says, however, that there are, secondly, friends who are pleasing to us, like the friend who is exceptionally good-looking and stylish, or the friend who is witty, or a delightful storyteller, or a humorist easily setting you to laugh. But then he says there is a third category, the friend who is a good friend in the sense of embodying the good, a friend who by virtue of his virtue makes you virtuous. Do you have a friend like this? Why are friends so necessary to form us in virtue? Well, because we need models. We need to see incarnations of virtue. We might say we need to see forms of virtue if we are to be formed in virtue. We are naturally imitators. This is wisdom that's confirmed by the great tradition itself. Aristotle says it. St. Paul says it when he tells the Corinthians, follow me as I follow Christ. And when he tells Timothy, the things you've learned from me impart to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Christ is always the great teacher in our midst. And we walk in his footsteps, denying ourselves, even as he did, carrying our cross, even as he did. Christ himself tells his disciples that he will no longer call them servants, but friends. And we're right to infer that he calls us friends too, if we, in fact, are his disciples. In one of his short works on education, The Catechesis of the Uninstructed, which you can find on the internet, Augustine describes the ways in which the teacher and the student can and should become, in an important sense, friends. It's worth hearing Augustine in his own words. Here he is. Once more, however, we often feel it very wearisome to go over repeatedly matters which are thoroughly familiar and adapted to children. If this is the case with us, then we should endeavor to meet them with a brother's, a father's, and a mother's love. And if we are once united with them thus in heart, to us no less than to them will these things seem new. For so great is the power of a sympathetic disposition of mind that, as they are affected while we are speaking, and we are affected while they are learning, we have our dwelling in each other. And thus, at one and the same time, they, as it were, in us speak what they hear, and we in them learn after a certain fashion what we teach. Is it not a common occurrence with us that when we show to persons who have never seen them certain spacious and beautiful tracks, either in cities or in fields, which we have been in the habit of passing by without any sense of pleasure, simply because we've become so accustomed to the sight of them, that we find our own enjoyment renewed in their enjoyment of the novelty of the scene? 
And this is so much the more our experience in proportion to the intimacy of our friendship with them. Because just as we are in them in virtue of the bond of love, in the same degree do things become new to us, which previously were old. It's a remarkable passage about friendship and teaching. But friendship is key here for the student. But it's also of great benefit to the teacher, as Augustine points out. Note how Augustine describes teaching as requiring love for a student, the love of a brother, father, or mother. Are these not instances of the greatest forms of friendship? Is this not why we often say that when we send a girl to a classical school that we place her there in loco parentis, in the place of parents? Isn't this our hope? That the teachers would teach and love our daughter as a brother, father, or mother? Do we not want all our children to be taught this way? This is precisely what is happening in thousands of classical homeschooling co-ops and schools across the country. In the typical co-op, several moms come together to teach one another's children. In the typical school, you'll find multiple teachers, fathers and mothers, who have their children enrolled in the school. Note as well Augustine's reference to a sympathetic disposition of mind. The teacher and student, like any good friendship, share a mind, share a similar mind. A similar love for the true, the good, the beautiful. They have the same pathos. Again, in the Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle says that friendship is like a single soul dwelling in two bodies. That's sympathy indeed. Augustine goes so far as to say that there's a mutual indwelling of teacher and student such that the teacher begins to live in the student, and the student begins to live in the teacher, creating a virtuous circle in which truth travels round and round from soul to soul, almost erasing the lines between teacher and student. Sometimes I think that what is a, what is a teacher but a more mature student, and what is a student but an immature teacher? The classical tradition has regularly noted the way in which friendship, which is amicitia in Latin and philia in Greek, the way that friendship is essential to education. Christ says that when a student is fully trained, he will be like his teacher. That's Luke 6. When a friend helps lead us to virtue, he or she is helping us to become more human, to become the fullest version of ourselves. The Latin virtus itself is derived from vir, the Latin word for man. To have virtus is to realize one's humanity. It can mean to be manly and in the sense of, in the sense of being brave or courageous, but it also means to possess excellence, any kind of excellence that can typify a human. From cooking to kicking, from horse riding to novel riding, from plumbing to professing. You likely know something of the cardinal virtues described early on by Plato and Aristotle and company. Prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude. These are the anthropological virtues that chart the potential excellences to which the human might attain. Virtuous friends help us to do this, and thus 
Friends give us the power to become ourselves. But the great tradition gives us another gift that's related, and that's the gift of wisdom. The great tradition provides us with a family, with fellowship, and it makes us a citizen of a global and timeless republic. And then it tells us we need friends, and it provides us with a long and continuing table of friends, friends who help us grow in virtue. And such growth in virtue slowly blesses us with another gift that comes to us with this friendship so slowly that we hardly notice it, and it's wisdom. Growth in virtue naturally means growth in wisdom, at least prudential wisdom, because prudence is the first and governing virtue of the four cardinal virtues. Prudence is a shortened form of the word providence, which means it is a virtue having to do with seeing, and even seeing beforehand what the real state of affairs is. Prudence is perception of reality. And when is that not helpful? The truly prudent person knows what to do in various circumstances and can even foresee events before they happen. So what is real? The tradition empowers us to know. Oddly, at our present moment, some previously very basic perceptions of the real are being questioned, like the nature of family, marriage, gender, sex, and biology. The questioners like to assign phobias to those who question their questions, clearly showing that they have erotosophobia, which is the fear of questioning questions. Earlier this year, I wrote an article on cosmophobia, the irrational fear of the world as it really is. The tradition forms us to become cosmophiles, and I for one plead guilty to any charges of cosmophilia. If you'll indulge me in yet another piece of etymology, the Latin word res means things. Now you want to know and understand things, right? Of course you do. You want to know the race of the world, if you concern yourself with public matters, you want to know the res publica, the public things. In Latin, anything having to do with things, with the race of the world, is called realis, real. And the verb rior means to think, and the participle of rior is ratus, which gives us ratio, which means reason. We need to rior on race to know the ratio, and what is realis in our res publica. I think you see the connections and picture here. Even the history of our language is in its own way formative, and the tradition freely gives us this as well. The reason prudence leads and governs the other virtues is because you must see what is real before you can give each man his due, that is justice, or curb your passions to act justly, that is temperance, or endure obstacles and hardship in order to do so, and that's fortitude. There are two kinds of wisdom specified in the great tradition, and the tradition wishes us to know the difference. The practical Prudential wisdom that we have mentioned is phronesis in Greek and prudentia in Latin. 
The comprehensive wisdom that knows reality in the most global sense is Sophia in Greek and Sapientia in Latin. For a man to grow wise, he will need this double wisdom, both practical insight and the more universal knowledge of the ways of God, men, and the cosmos. How does this happen? Slowly. The tradition says to walk, not run. It says to contemplate, reread, make haste slowly, to master each step. It says to ponder, linger, savor, and relish. The Latin word sapientia is related to the word sapio, sapire, which means to taste, to savor. We might imagine that to know the ways of the cosmos means that we are to regularly taste it, to eat it, as it were, as Ezekiel was commanded to eat the scroll. The world may not be our oyster, but it does present a continual feast, or maybe an eternal wine-tasting junket that leaves us tipsy but never drunk. This is how you grow wise. Taste. Taste and see. Have another drink. It's worth noting the pairing of these two Latin wise words. Sapientia metamorphosizes our sense of taste. Taste and see that the Lord is good and that his cosmos is good too. And prudentia, a version of providence, connects to our sense of sight. Acquiring both sapientia and prudentia, we can say both I see it and I savor it. The man or woman who attains to some measure of wisdom, the tradition also praises. Here's the noble woman, the praiseworthy woman of Proverbs 31. It's a classic example. She speaks with wisdom, and faithful instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. The great tradition, therefore, shows what to love, that is the lovely, and what to praise, wisdom and virtue. That in itself is immensely formative, for what we praise is what we worship, is what we behold, and is what we become. The tradition also tells us that we should seek wisdom above all else. We are told to turn our ear to wisdom and our hearts to understanding. That's in Proverbs 2. To call out for insight and to cry aloud for understanding and to search for it as hidden treasure. Only then can we expect to find it. We must seek before we find, ask before it will be given, and knock if the door will be opened before us. Another classic passage that comes to us in this tradition is from John Henry Newman, writing in 1852, who summarizes for us what happens when someone has been educated enough to become wise. He writes, The perfection of the intellect, which is the result of education and its bow or beautiful ideal, to be imparted in their respective measures, is... And here he tells us what it is. This is the result of an education. 
is the clear, calm, accurate vision and comprehension of all things, as far as the fine mind can embrace them, each in its place and with its own characteristics upon it. It's almost prophetic from its knowledge of history. It's almost heart-searching from its knowledge of human nature. It has almost supernatural charity from its freedom from littleness and prejudice. It has almost the repose of faith, because nothing can startle it. It has almost the beauty and harmony of heavenly contemplation. So intimate is it with the eternal order of things and the music of the spheres. Well, if you cannot quite grasp the profundity of this passage, if you're still trying to interpret it, well, join the club. Newman cites several words and phrases previously well-known that we are today relearning. Phrases like perfection of the intellect, bow ideal, beauty and harmony of heavenly contemplation, the music of the spheres. What spheres? What spheres make music? Most of us don't know, but it sounds like a really cool name for a band the music of the spheres, and someone told me recently that I think Coldplay has an album out called Music of the Spheres. (sighs) Well, we don't know anymore what these phrases refer to, but the spheres are the planets that move, and they move, and so they must make music, or music can be considered as a harmony of pattern and regularity that therefore is musical, because music doesn't just mean sound, It means harmony, and harmony doesn't just mean sound either. It means the symmetry. It means the whole in beautiful patterned relationship with the parts, and the parts with the whole. The music of the spheres. But fourthly, the great tradition gives us another gift, because we have to move on, and that's blessedness. If we could become wise, well, we would become blessed or blessed. The tradition tells us about the beauty of being able to see things as they really are and then conforming our life to what is real, to the beauty and harmony we encounter as things as they really are. If like Elisha's servant, the heavens could open up a bit so that you could even for just one moment see one small legion of angels, well, then I bet you would cry out, beauty. If you are given or acquire eyes to see, then you will learn the meaning of intellectual vision, and more pointedly, you'll learn of the phrase beatific vision. Plato believed in intellectual seeing that would transform the soul. Augustine prays for it throughout the Confessions, and Aquinas writes of it in his Summa, and Dante shows it to us the best perhaps a poet can in Paradiso. The beatific vision is present in the passage we read from Newman when he speaks of the calm, accurate, clear vision and comprehension of of all things, and especially when he mentions the beauty and harmony of heavenly contemplation. 20th century continuators of the great tradition like A.G. Sertolange and Joseph Pieper write about this vision and its blessedness 
regularly. This is why Sertolange can call study a prayer to the truth. And why Pieper says that anyone who truly sees reality will respond with worship and make plans to celebrate. When we truly see what is real, we see that the real having come from God is good, even though fallen, and our heart gladdens to the point of praise and celebration, even through the various deserts we must travel. It is good that we are here, and here it is good. Which of us does not want to be blessed? Pieper notes that to see and know the true, the good, the beautiful, comes to us when we stop working and grasping for it, but rather turn our hands and hearts upward and outward in a posture of receptivity. When we stop long enough to gaze, insight comes to us without work, just as light enters our eyes if and when we simply open them. Thus, the tradition, the tradition tells us not merely to look, but to gaze. Gifts come to the gazer. We can note that the busiest executive in Judah at about 1000 BC was King David. But King David had time to be a poet, which means he had time to observe and gaze. And what he observes in Psalm 27 is that he would like to be a gazing poet every day, if he could. He writes, one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. How are we formed? We gaze. Again, the medieval, the medieval maxim was, we become what we behold. And finally, the tradition that blesses us also gives us hope, the fifth great gift that I'm listing, among many. The great tradition holds forth virtue and wisdom as the great ends of education, and growing in virtue and wisdom will bring a man happiness, or eudaimonia in the Greek, according to Aristotle, along with contemplation. The Christian faith brings all of these Platonic and Aristotelian ideas to fulfillment. Plato's forms are fulfilled in Christ as the arche or the archegon, the author and finisher of all, all that's true, good, and beautiful. Plato and Aristotle's who, who long for virtue and wisdom, their, their longing is also fulfilled in Christ, who is the power and wisdom of God. Christ brings us not only virtue and wisdom, but blessedness in Greek, the word is makarios, that quality enjoyed principally by the gods who are beyond human care. Christ brings us makarios, blessedness or happiness, that to Homer anyway was only something the gods could enjoy. Christ brings that to us even when we mourn, even when we hunger and thirst, even when we're persecuted. The Beatitudes listed by Jesus in Matthew 5 all begin with makarios. Makarios are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Makarios are those who mourn, 
for they will be comforted. Makarios are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Makarios are all those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Makarios are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Makarios are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Makarios are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Makarios are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Christ therefore complements the cardinal virtues, prudence, justice, temperance, and courage, promising a kind of heavenly happiness that infuses our earthly life. He complements the cardinal virtues with the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. If the cardinal virtues are anthropological virtues that help us realize our humanity, then the theological virtues are infused with the presence of Christ himself within us, Christ the hope of glory, and help us not only to be humans, but to be like Christ or Christ ones, which is to say Christians. St. Patrick, a captured slave. In Ireland, he lived as a captured slave from age 14 to 20, and then later became an evangelist and the converter of pagan Ireland. Patrick saw that Christ was within us to bless us and therefore to give us hope. But Christ is not just within us. Here is this well-known prayer of St. Patrick. Patrick writes and prays, I arise today through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through belief in the threeness, through confession of the oneness of the creator of creation. I arise today through the strength of Christ's birth with his baptism, through the strength of his crucifixion with his burial, through the strength of his resurrection with his ascension, through the strength of his descent for the judgment of doom. I arise today through the strength of the love of cherubim, in the obedience of angels, in the service of archangels, in the hope of the resurrection to meet with reward, in the prayers of patriarchs, in the predictions of prophets, in the preaching of apostles, in the faith of confessors, in the innocence of holy virgins, in the deeds of righteous men. I arise today through the strength of heaven, the light of the sun, the radiance of the moon, the splendor of fire, the speed of lightning, the swiftness of wind, the depth of the sea, the stability of the earth, the firmness of rock. I arise today through God's strength to pilot me, God's might to uphold me, God's wisdom to guide me, God's eye to look before me, God's ear to hear me, God's word to speak for me, God's hand to guard me, God's shield to protect me, God's host to save me from snares of devils, from temptation of vices, from everyone who shall wish me ill afar and near. I summon today all these powers between me and those evils against every cruel and merciless power that may oppose my body and soul against incantations of false prophets, against black laws of pagandom, against false laws of heretics, against craft of idolatry, against spells of witches and smiths and wizards, against every knowledge that corrupts man's body and soul, 
Christ to shield me today against poison, against burning, against drowning, against wounding, so that there may come to me an abundance of reward. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. I arise today through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through belief in the threeness, through confession of the oneness of the Creator of creation. Now it's a long prayer, and it's a tradition. It is an instant, an example, a revelation of the tradition, the great tradition. Patrick's prayer reveals the theological transformation of the great tradition that calls forth as witnesses and advocates and friends not only the remarkable beauty and power of the cosmos, the stars, the sun, lightning, but the ready obedience of the invisible angels, the echoing prayers of patriarchs like Abraham, the pronouncements of prophets like Isaiah, the preaching of the apostles like Paul, the present power of the Trinity itself, and the intimate indwelling and animation of Christ himself. Just as Patrick, living in the 300s AD, looked back hundreds of years to the prophets and apostles, we look back not only to the prophets and apostles, but also to Patrick himself, who lived hundreds of years before our time. Patrick looked to a rich tradition. Now we see Patrick in that tradition of which he wrote and prayed. We might add a line to his prayer, I arise today in the strength of Patrick or of the preaching of the missionaries. Like Patrick. To the great crowd of witnesses before us and around us, we can add St. Patrick. His prayer is a prayer in and of the tradition, and it should be ours too. So I conclude, the tradition itself, having been forged over centuries in the furnace of God's good providence, is strong like Christ is strong. It is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. The great tradition does not need to be defended any more than one needs to defend a lion. It is we who need the great tradition, not it that needs us. The great tradition gives us a fellowship, friends, citizenship, and a long-standing republic that will continue after our day has passed. Alfred J. Nock saw this nearly a hundred years ago when he gave a series of lectures on education at the University of Virginia. He was not confident that the U.S. would soon return and embrace the great tradition, but this did not disturb his peace because he was first a citizen of the great tradition and only secondarily to the U.S. He writes, The great tradition will be no man's debtor. When we speak of promoting it or continuing it, we are using a purely conventional mode of speech, as when we say that the sun rises or sets. 
We can do nothing for the great tradition. Our fidelity to it can do everything for us. Creatures of a day, how shall we think what we do or leave undone is of consequence to what abides forever? Our devotion, our integrity of purpose, our strictness of conscience are not exercised in behalf of the great tradition, but in our own behalf. Our recurrency cannot weaken it. Our faithfulness cannot strengthen it. We alone are damaged by the one and edified by the other. The great tradition is independent of us, not we of it. We have therefore no responsibility but the happy one of keeping our eyes single to our own obedience. We need not take thought for the great tradition's welfare, but only for our own. It asks no protection or championship from us, and any volunteer service of this kind is mere officiousness. The great tradition, like the church, will never perish from the earth. It stands like a mountain that will not move. If we receive this tradition, if we are in this tradition, then we find ourselves on this mountain elevated and sustained despite any floods, storms, or turbulence. The ark rested on a mountain, and the law was given on a mountain, and Christ was transfigured and transformed on a mountain, on this mountain of the great tradition, and by its power, we too are transformed. Thank you once again for viewing or listening. I really appreciate it. You can read this article more or less as I've spoken it on uh, at Christopher Parent at Substack.com. And you can also view more of my lectures on ClassicalU.com. Thanks for being with me. I'd like to thank you for watching or listening to The Christopher Perrin Show. And to do that, I can give you a coupon code that will give you 10% off on anything that you might care to order at ClassicalAcademicPress.com. And the coupon code is simply CPSHOW. Thanks again for listening or watching.